Hello, and welcome to the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement's podcast, Wonks at Work. I'm Craig Wilson, your host, a self-declared wonk, dad of two boys, native Arkansan, and I've been the health policy director at the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement for more than a decade. On this show, we aim to demystify, boil down, and unwonk, if you will, complex topics so that you can understand how the healthcare system is working or not working for you. Thanks for walking out with us and tuning in for today's episode on which we're going to join in with our public health partners for Antibiotic Awareness Week, an annual observance that raises awareness about the threat of antibiotic resistance and the importance of appropriate antibiotic use. Now, our guest today is Jordan Murdoch, who is a licensed pharmacist and a pharmacy consultant for the Arkansas Department of Health's Healthcare Associated Infections and HIV programs. He also serves as the chair of the board of directors for the Arkansas Antimicrobial Stewardship Foundation. Originally from Cabot, Arkansas, he graduated from the St. Louis College of Pharmacy in 2015. Jordan, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us. Thanks, Craig. It's so great to be here. All right, now we're going to get to some serious stuff, um, microbes and all, right? Uh, but I want to know what keeps you busy when you're not working. Okay, so recently I have twin daughters. Mm. They will be one year old in three days. Oh gosh, you're busy. So that is what keep that's <laughs> that's what keeps me busy currently. Uh, my wife and I have our hands full. We get we have a lot of support, but that's what keeps me busy. Um, last year, what kept me busy was a uh, year-round training for the most part for a full Ironman, which I did in the end of September. Oh, wow. And that was like, if you ever want to get prepared for having kids or, or twins, even do, do something like that, that really keeps you busy and engaged. <laughs> so I, I did that. And then, uh, outside of, of those things, when I have free time, I like to, I love to learn something new. I'm, I'm an active learner. Um, I recently have tried to teach myself, um, programming through Python and that's <laughs> kind of transitioned into data analytics with SAS and R. Um, novice for sure, but being able to speak the language and understand it uh, at least a little bit is is really helpful for um, what we do at ADH. Yeah, it's a it definitely is a different language. Yes, uh, as is parenting, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, so I ask all of our wonky guests this question: What would you say is your theme song? Okay, so this is actually the hardest question. That, that we, we kind of talked about before this. This is the hardest one for me. So my music taste spans spans the genre. Yeah. I actually asked ChatGPT to uh, define my music taste. I gave him a list of some of the things I liked, and it was yeah. like from, uh, what was it, from jet, from rap to hip-hop to, to classical music to harmonica, something like that. Um, to harmonica? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it was. It gave me this answer that it really like encapsulated, because I, I listen to, to rock, alternatives, rap, uh, classical music, just tones when I'm studying. It kind of depends on what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, so anyway, my, my theme song would probably be Walk by Foo Fighters. Oh, good one. Yeah, so there's kind of like the deeper meaning of that. It's not necessarily my favorite song, but I, I started listening to it on repeat when uh, we were in the hospital for delivery for my wife. She mm-hmm. delivered two months earlier. And the, the message for that song is kind of uh, resiliency in the, in the face of, of suffering or obstacles and, and, and persevering through that yeah. and using obstacles as, uh, as a foundation and stepping stone instead of, an op- instead of um, uh, deterring your path. I think I lost my way Getting good at starting over Every time
that was that's my first choice, my runner up. So I'll give you I'll give you two. <laughs> All right. Is is Believer by Imagine Dragons. Yeah. Uh, so Believer by Imagine Dragons in its lyrics, it kind of has a similar message of uh, resiliency and leaning into pain, leaning into hardship and suffering mm-hmm. because uh, life has its hardships and obstacles. And the the way you know we can't always choose what happens to us, but we get to choose how we respond to that. Mm-hmm. So using that to fuel you instead of kind of uh, turn you in the other direction is motivational for me. And then a believer with Imagine Dragons, I actually listened to on repeat when I was receiving radiation down at MD Anderson for cancer oh, in 2016. Wow. Uh, 2017, I think, is when I received the radiation. Uh, so it's got some personal significance. Yeah. I was broken from a young age, taking my soak into the masses, writing my poems for the few that look at me, took to me, shook at me, feeling me, singing from heartache, from the pain, taking my message from the veins, speaking my lesson from the brain, seeing the beauty through the... So those two would be absolutely good inspirational music there. I can hear my my boys in the in the back seat of the car singing "Believer." Um, One of these days, I'll get them into Foo Fighters. All right, so let's get down to business. So this is, of course, a time of year when we're spending more time indoors, and infections can more easily spread, as we know, having kids, right? Uh, For most of us, when we get sick, our kids get sick with cold-like symptoms. We just expect to be prescribed an antibiotic, but that's not always the right solution, right? Right. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And I think it's interesting that um, there was this study that that looked at, uh, are people really expecting an antibiotic? Are patients really expecting this when they go to a doctor's office? Mm -hmm. Um, And what they found is they they interviewed patients and they interviewed the providers and kind of got an idea of what their two expectations were. And that study showed that there's a slight misalignment that patients weren't necessarily expecting an antibiotic. They were expecting Mm -hmm. things like feel better, to Mm -hmm. be listened to. How do I improve these symptoms to get back to work? That's kind of what they wanted. Now, some people that translates to that's an antibiotic. Give me a pill. Yeah, give me a pill. <laughs> yes, that's kind of that culture is a pill for every ill. Yeah. So uh, that that translates to an antibiotic for some people. But for uh, the majority, it's it's to be listened to about what you have going on, to be given guidance on how to improve your symptoms. Um, so with that, there's some kind of antibiotic stewardship strategies that kind of target that like uh, that misalignment and expectations. Mm-hmm. And then on the provider side of things, their expectation is uh, from this study, I, I cannot. I didn't lock the study in before I started uh, today. So, um, from this study, the provider perspective was the patient wants an antibiotic. Yeah. So that then is kind of tied into, well, we have uh, patient satisfaction surveys. So if I don't give the patient what they want or what I think they want, they could potentially score me um, poorly on the patient satisfaction survey. Mm-hmm which is then tied into performance, annual performance reviews, bonuses, and and things like that. So it it kind of is this dynamic that's being touched on in stewardship in the the outpatient setting. Yeah. So um, antimicrobial resistance, big, big words there. Yes. What what is it and why should we be aware of it? Yeah. And that this is uh, fundamental to antimicrobial stewardship. Without the understanding of antimicrobial resistance, it's just a waste of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and stewardship is, is not a waste of time. I'm biased on this. <laughs> uh, but antimicrobial stewardship is simply the development of resistance to bacteria or other microbes to the antibiotics or antimicrobials that historically have treated them. 
So we, we can you can look at a timeline of uh, antibiotics when they hit the market versus when resistance was first identified. Um, hmm. There's an exception to this that I'll get on in a second, but uh, we can look at like fluoroquinolones when they hit the market which is like ciprofloxacin, levofloxacin. Um, when they hit the market, resistance is identified a year or so after that, almost mm. immediately. Um, a lot of the cephalosporins, when they hit the market, resistance is identified almost immediately. Uh, an exception to that is vancomycin. It's kind of, I don't really know why, but... Uh, what, what is that? Vancomycin is, uh, it, it's, a medica- it's an antibiotic used to treat gram-positive infections. And so when you think of bacteria, they kind of are thrown into first two uh, into two categories initially, and that's like their spectrum of activity. So uh, antibiotics can cover gram-positive bacteria or gram-negative bacteria. Okay. And the gram is referred to, um, is, is named by, based off of the gram staining, which is a laboratory process where you can uh, differentiate between a bacteria, whether it has certain, uh, certain characteristics. Yeah. Like, yeah. does it have a cell wall or a cell membrane? How thick is that? So one group is gram-positive and the other group is gram-negative. And then based on that, we kind of lump some antimicrobials into their spectrum of activity. So I'll, I'll touch on that probably later on. Like typically we tried to stay narrow, uh, as narrow as possible, but initially you have to go broad. So when you go broad, you go broad spectrum and you kind of get the most coverage as you can. So that's like when someone is uh, admitted to the ICU and they're really sick, you want to make sure that they get the antibiotics when they're needed. Uh, so you go broad and cover your best guess at an empiric approach. Um, and then as you get culture results back or laboratory results back, you can narrow down the spectrum. And that ties into um, kind of several different things we'll, we'll touch on. Okay. Okay. Um, so it's it's awareness week, right? Um, in terms of the patient-provider relationship, what would some good key messages for providers be in educating patients about why they, they might not be getting a, a, an antibiotic for their particular concern? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, because a lot of times in the outpatient setting, that's I think a lot of this conversation will revolve around the outpatient setting, even though antibiotics are prescribed in all types of sure. settings. But in the outpatient setting, providers are limited to 15, 20 minutes, maybe 30 minutes of patient interaction. And it just becomes easier, the path of least resistance to uh, prescribe an antibiotic. So you kind of fall into these behavioral practices where you, you see certain signs or symptoms, you write a Z-Pack, mm. out the door they go, Z-Pack and a prednisone shot, and the patient is is happy. The suspected infection is is treated, whether they think it's viral or bacterial. So taking that extra step seems like more work, th- seems like it's uh, more work than it's worth, maybe. Mm-hmm. So uh, in this patient and provider interaction, I think now, this is, this is not, uh, I think, evidence-based kind of what, what I'm giving. This is from conversations that I've had with providers, sure. um, lessons I've learned from um, CDC and, and other organizations have looked into this more, uh, more in-depth. So I, I think those are some of the driving factors from a provider perspective. It, it's literally just easier to write an antibiotic, and it still accomplishes the goal. Like if you write uh, a too broad of an antibiotic, it covers more than is needed for that infection, it's still going to cover the infection. The patient's going to be fine. They're going to recover. Ideally, the patient's going to be fine. They're going to recover from the infection. Yeah. Um, but what does that mean for antibiotic resistance? Right. And so on an individual basis, sure, it'll it'll help the patient. Yep. But on a more broad public health aspect, you might be doing more harm from a population standpoint. 
right? Right. Yeah. So that, that's that's a, a good way to look at it, kind of on an individual basis and then a, a populist basis. Yeah. And then on the individual basis, I, I think um, education and uh, awareness around antibiotics is important for providers to be cued into and to be made available to providers because on the individual basis, antibiotics aren't always um, harmless. They're, they they come with side effects. Yeah. They they can lead to something called Clostridioides difficile, which is severe uh, diarrhea. It can lead to hospitalization um, and, and death. So there are um, risks to an antibiotic use yeah. on the individual base, in addition to at the population level, kind of this this uh, antibiotic resistance amongst the populace. Yeah. So uh, that that risk to benefit uh, consideration that providers go through, um, they really need to factor in uh, it, to be aware of this information so they can factor that in on an individual basis. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, I mentioned early on in this. Um, there's an increased demand at this time of year. You know, we're all inside. We're all breathing the same air, right? Our kids are going to school. They're coming back with all kinds of infections. And that demand, um, at least last year and this year, from reports that I've seen, um, has contributed to antibiotic shortages. But are there other things that are contributing to those shortages as well that are more systemic in nature? You know... There were a lot of supply chain issues, um, maybe before COVID-19, but certainly since and during COVID-19, um, just kind of in different industries across the, the globe, really. Um, we live in a, in a globalized society, right? Yeah. So something that happens in one part of the world can affect what's going on here. So I, I think when you have these drug manufacturers um, located even here in the U.S. or in other parts of the world, uh, and then there's a supply chain issue, I think that's one of the, the causes to these shortages. Um, an increased demand may be responsible for the shortage, uh, but I don't. I don't think it's uh, necessarily proportional that the demand has increased so high that that's what yeah. the shortage is. I just think the the supply of those antibiotics has been hampered in one way or another, um, and I think those are. are great questions to look into and one approach into um, what can we do about this problem of antibiotic resistance because we, you can approach it from a, a drug availability standpoint. If you have antibiotics that are losing susceptibility to these bacteria, then make an, make more antibiotics. Make more, so have the research and development behind them. Are, are we having um, institutions and organizations providing funding and providing ways to make more antibiotics? Um, that treat specific resistant infections that are semi-new. Um, this isn't something that I deal with or that we really even deal with at Arkansas Department of Health. Sure. Um, we're more on the side of let's do better with what we have currently. Let's mm -hmm. let's uh, delay or prolong the effectiveness of these antibiotics as long as possible. Um, so we can look at it from an antibiotic uh, supply uh, perspective, but then we can also look at it from... Um, the uh, antibiotic availability perspective, I, I believe that's that's what it was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, now I know you've you've been involved with HIV programs and healthcare associated uh, infections, uh, and I know that there are populations that are more susceptible uh, to infections. Are there patient populations who might be at increased risk for poor outcomes due to antimicrobial resistance itself? Yeah, absolutely. So that's something in the post-antibiotic era, that theoretical era that we mentioned earlier. Um, they will be the populations that are impacted the most by these res resistant infections. Mm. And those are the ones who have a suppressed immune system mm -hmm. for one reason or another, whether they're on 
immunosuppressive therapy for rheumatoid arthritis or whether they have something, a disease, a, a, an infection that can suppress the immune system like HIV. Uh, maybe they're a cancer patient on chemotherapy and their immune system has taken a hit because of that medication. Uh, maybe they are elderly, so their immune system is in some type of immune compromised status. Um, pregnant patients, uh, mm. uh, pregnancy is also a, a, a pseudo immunocompromised position. Um, maybe not even pseudo. I, I, they are more uh, pregnant women are more susceptible to infections, mm-hmm. and then that impacts the the, the mother and, and the child as well. So uh, the, these populations, if you can think of, if we didn't have antibiotics. Um, Who's going? Who is it going to impact the most? It, it's going to be those populations. Yeah. And then, uh, in addition to that, antibiotics are really the. This is a big. This is kind of a big thing. Uh, are, are the backbone of modern medicine. Uh, we wouldn't be able to perform the surgeries that we do. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't be able to perform the mm-hmm. organ transplants that we that we do. That really sustains life and um, increases the overall life expectancy across the U.S. and the globe. Um, without these antibiotics, which yeah. are used to prevent infections. So as an antibiotic steward, I kind of uh, sometimes cringe at prophylaxis, which is a preventative use of antibiotics. Right. Uh, but there are situations where it is warranted, and the data shows that it's warranted. So, for example, when a pregnant woman uh, d- it goes through delivery, and sometimes an antibiotic is warranted mm-hmm. if there's a certain bacteria present on the mother, and that prevents transmission from the mother to the child. It's called vertical transmission. Mm-hmm. So that alone it can can decrease mortality rate for for the ch- child mortality rate yeah. um, and then there is along with syphilis and congenital syphilis is something that can be prevented entirely by by being treated with penicillin so having these uh thinking of, of where where antibiotics are most effective um that's the population that's going to be impacted the most yeah. so we talked a little bit about this individual versus kind of population based and we tend to think of most health and healthcare challenges individually, right? Because if it affects me. Um, and I, I think a little bit of that might have changed during COVID-19 to, to think more broadly about how our own individual health impacts others. Um, but this is a bigger public health challenge, even a, a global challenge, right? Meaning that even if I'm doing the right thing, I still may be affected by someone else's decision maybe even in some other part of the globe, right? Yeah, absolutely. It, so I, it, the, the kind of term or concept I like for this is that antibiotics are a shared resource, hmm. um, just like a shared public resource. They Once uh, their af- effectiveness is used up, then they're, they're, they're gone. So being a shared resource, it, it has to be a... a, a public health lens needs to be looked at when we're thinking of antibiotic um, use in mm-hmm. general. Uh, so if you were to take a, a guideline discordant high blood pressure medication for extended period of time, that's going to affect you and your blood pressure will either be too high or too low on a regular basis. That won't affect who you live with. That won't affect for people in, uh, in the community. Um, but when it comes to an antibiotic, that that, yeah. that changes, right? Because we're treating a whole different organism. We're not treating the patient. We're treating the bacteria or the microbe that's, that's on the patient. Mm-hmm. And then if those microbes become resistant to certain antibiotics or an entire class of antibiotics, those resistant microbes and bacteria can be spread to the next person. So person A can take an antibiotic, develop a, a resistant infection, and then that bacteria can then be transmitted to person B who has maybe never taken antibiotic in their life. If that exists, maybe you know they, they have not taken antibiotic in the past 10 years, but they can still catch this infection mm-hmm. despite anything that they do. Yeah, yeah. 
So we got to think about it globally, definitely. Right, <laughs> right. Um, and, and and frankly, you know, other countries' public health efforts in these areas are going to either benefit us globally or not, um, because it's a, it's not only a shared resource; it's a shared challenge. It is, yeah, and a shared opportunity for improvement. Yeah, absolutely. is a good way to to phrase it as well. <laughs> Looking on the bright side. Yeah, like right, it. right. We, we've got um, we've got a few fantastic people that are working on the international issue. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm not I'm not one of those. My purview is here here in Arkansas, and, and what can we do to improve antibiotic use amongst Arkansans and to help prevent antibiotic resistance? Um, one of those things is within the Healthcare Associated Infections Program. Who um, shout out to the program coordinator Kelly Gardner. She does an amazing job in. Um, monitoring and surveilling for uh, antibiotic resistant um, bacteria Mm -hmm. and infections throughout the state. So that's one of the ways that as the Arkansas Department of Health, we kind of are able to keep um, an idea of what the resistance patterns look like in Arkansas. We have, uh, there's a drug class called carbapenems, which is the antibiotic. So that I was talking about broad spectrum and narrow spectrum. These carbapenems, some names are meropenem, imipenem, and ertapenem. These carbapenems are about as broad as it gets from mm-hmm. coverage, gram positive, gram negative, and they really need to be relegated to last line of resort. Mm. When we have a patient with these certain uh, enzymes, like there are five that we watch for uh, at with the HAI program that are reportable. If a patient has an infection and one of these enzymes is suspected or identified, then it's reported to the ADH mm. and we monitor it and we keep trends on, on kind of what's going on in Arkansas. With these antibiotic-resistant infections that are reported to ADH, um, some examples of those are NDM, which is uh, a name for an enzyme that causes resistance. And that enzyme that is uh, a short for New Delhi metallo-beta-lactamase. So that kind of, uh, it was named based on its place of origin over in India. And that speaks to the global issue of antibiotic resistance. Mm-hmm. This, this first enzyme that caused the bacteria to be resistant to antibiotics, right? was identified in, in India. And now in Arkansas, we are identifying NDMs. Uh, historically, we've had three or three per year, three, four or five NDM cases reported to ADH per year. Um, this year, we've had 23. Wow. So this increase of these NDM and enzymes, it gets it gets really granular and, um, and really confusing when we start talking about enzymes because that can be in an E. coli uh, bacteria. It could be in a Klebsiella bacteria. So in different, um, in different bacteria, they can have these, these similar enzymes. So when you look at it on like an enzymatic level, um, you can really see the global relation to this, this problem of antibiotic resistance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you've really taken the path less traveled in your career thus far, uh, being involved in public health practice, in addition to kind of the more transactional side of healthcare uh, in pharmacy. So for our students out there or for those who are early in their careers interested in public health practice, what would be your advice to them? Yeah, that's a that's a great question and a, another challenging one because I did have a non-traditional path. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think the best advice that I could give, which is which is what I did, is I always was learning. Like I always sought to be learning something new, um, keeping my eyes open for opportunities, finding out what I'm passionate about. And that sounds kind of like a cliche answer, but that's that's what happened for me. An opportunity presented itself, and I was um, 
learning in the process about what I wanted to do. I'm, I, I knew that I was okay in an uncomfortable situation, so a new environment. Mm-hmm. And because I knew that, um, I was able to explore this, this uh, new opportunity, which is um, I started out in retail pharmacy originally when I first graduated pharmacy school. And that was the kind of the transi- transactional side yeah. of pharmacy that you mentioned. Um, and then that slowly transitioned into a public health lens when I took over some medication therapy management reviews from kind of all the pharmacies mm-hmm. uh, in this chain that I was a part of and, until that chain went bankrupt. And then I had to figure out what to do for a job. So I, one of the pharmacists I worked with knew that they had a uh, an opening at a a mail order pharmacy for uh, that really focused on HIV medication. It was the our contracted pharmacy for the Ryan White program, mm-hmm. um, and, and so I, I ended up getting a job there just out of out of necessity, and then fell in love with HIV care and managing antiretroviral therapy for patients and interacting with that patient population, and then that that passion grew into a passion for for stewardship and public health in general when an opportunity opened up at uh, the Arkansas Department of Health mm-hmm. for an HIV pharmacist and a stewardship pharmacist. Uh, so that is, you can't really predict that. <laughs> I, you know, 10 years ago, five years ago, I, yeah, five years ago, I've been at the Arkansas Department mm-hmm. of Health for close to four years now. And even five years ago, I would, told, I would not have been able to tell you that I'm going to be in public health. Yeah. Or this is what I, I want to do. I knew I had a passion uh, for interacting with patients and knew what I liked and didn't like and was willing to, to learn and uh, accept, you could call it uncomfortable situations, um, in new environments and, and learn and grow in my career. Um, a short answer to that is there is an expedited process. You can get an MPH degree. You can actually um, continue that learning process in a structured form. Um, even if you get the MPH, that doesn't mean you're going to be guaranteed a job. You still need to be looking and still need to be uh, to, to start thinking of what we do as pharmacists through the lens of, of public health and being uh, aware of what the lens of public health is. I think there's opportunities. Uh, there are opportunities that exist that's not necessarily in being employed by a public health department, mm-hmm. but you're independent or your community pharmacy can have public health focuses. Yeah. Um, you can, you know, one, one thing that uh, is being worked on currently that I'm I'm kind of a part of is we're working on an HIV uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis and post-exposure prophylaxis protocol for pharmacies to actually initiate those therapies. So they write the prescription for them. So this is something uh, that has already been in existence with, and this does relate more to, to the stewardship, uh, to antibiotics at least. Uh, pharmacies and community pharmacies, they are able to, um, right now, there is a protocol that they can test for group A strep pharyngitis, and then they can treat it as well. So pharmacies can write a prescription. Pharmacists in the community setting uh, can write a prescription for amoxicillin or for treatment for strep. Mm. Uh, so this protocol is kind of being the uh, scope of practice for pharmacists is growing in Arkansas. So thinking about how can I impact um, not just my patients here, but it, the patients across across the state. Yeah. So I, I think it's just important for particularly for students or those early in their careers to understand that this is even an option, that the public health side of practice is even an option. Jordan, thanks so much for joining us on the show uh, it's been a great in-depth conversation and uh, look forward to hear more about it and creating awareness like you've done. Thanks, Craig. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Walks at Work. You can listen to our bi-weekly podcast on our website, 
achi.net. A special thanks to the Bobby L. Roberts Library of Arkansas History and Art, which is a part of the Central Arkansas Library System for allowing us to use their studio to record. If you have any topics you would like for us to consider, please email us at achi at achi.net. As a reminder, the views, information, and opinions expressed by our podcast guests are solely those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement. The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The podcast does not constitute medical, legal, or other professional advice or services. We hope you've enjoyed our latest episode. And again, thanks for listening.